Good morning. Um, there are Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one of those. And this morning we will be reading from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're visiting with us, you might be thinking at this point, oh, here we go again. More talk about who's not going to heaven. Uh, why did I come today? Um, well, I'm glad you're here if you're visiting. We're actually exploring the entire letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written in the middle of the first century by the Apostle Paul, uh, sent to a very young church uh, that he had started less than five years before this letter was written. And what we're doing with 1 Corinthians is we're, we're looking at it as ancient wisdom for current issues. And what we've been talking about specifically for the last few weeks, and we're going to complete it today, it's kind of a mini-series within a larger series. We're talking about how the Christian worldview, uh, the good news, the gospel itself provides healing and clarity for people who have been sexually broken or confused. And as I've pointed out in the past, that's kind of all of us. Uh, the effects of sin on our sexuality it, it is, is, is pervasive throughout our culture, throughout history, uh, even in our own lives. Uh, sexual brokenness has affected us either personally or people very close to us. So in a sense, it impacts all of us. And, and what we've talked about, what we've seen over the last three weeks is this. First of all, that sexual healing requires the pursuit of truth and grace as a faith community. We can't give up either, but we must pursue together a balance of truth and grace. Secondly, sexual healing requires the stewardship of our bodies. We need to understand, according to the Apostle Paul, that we don't own our bodies, which is very countercultural, but that God owns them because he bought them back with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we don't own but are stewards of our bodies. Thirdly, sexual healing requires contentment in whatever situation we're in. Single, married, not sure what we should be. Sexual healing requires contentment in our situation. Now today, kind of wrapping things up, and look, this series is by no means exhaustive or complete. Uh, it's simply, I'm simply addressing issues that the Apostle Paul raised in this letter. There are other issues that I haven't touched on that you may be thinking about. We can talk about those, those issues, uh, but I'm going to wrap this, this mini-series up today by saying that sexual healing also requires a bit of storytelling. What I mean by that is being able to analyze the story that you believe about yourself. Sexual healing requires a bit of careful storytelling. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist. He, he lives south of D.C. He wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. 
And in that book, his premise is that evil uses our sin and our shame to create for us a false narrative that we are tempted and deceived to believe about God, about ourselves, about the world and reality. A false narrative. And he uses Genesis chapter 3 to show how sin, how, I'm sorry, how evil uses our sin and our sense of shame, the sense that we are not good, that we are unlovable, that, that, that there's something innately wrong in us, uh, uses all of that uh, to basically get us to believe an, an alternative narrative, a false narrative. And you see it in the very beginning when the serpent tempts Eve in the garden. He says, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of that fruit, of that one tree? What we see here is that any sin, any sin comes out of a false story, out of believing a story that is ultimately not true. And that is what the devil and that is what evil does. It, it convinces us to believe a false narrative about ourselves. And so we begin believing, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm not worth people's time and energy. I'm unlovable. I'm unlikable. Uh, I am no value to my boss. I was not worth my parents staying together. Fill in the blank. I'm a Red Sox fan. (laughs) I'm only saying that because we actually saw a man with the audacity to stand up here and preach the good news to children, impressionable little people with a Red Sox hat on. I I don't know about that. I'm, I'm just joking. Uh, We believe these things about ourselves, and actually, uh, Kurt Thompson says that we end up basing our personal stories, what we believe about ourselves, we base our stories on experiences that we have endured that powerfully impacted our brains and our emotions. And he writes, the more I practice remembering things I am emotionally drawn to, the more I become that which I remember. Now, that could be that you're emotionally attracted to good things, but what he's talking about is when we're emotionally attracted to destructive things. We become that which we remember. So, for instance, for myself, uh, the story that I believed about myself as a kid was that I was amongst my peers, in my peer group, in my friend group, uh, with other kids, I, I, was, I was unlikable. Now, I, I got to be careful because I got parents and family here. I had a great family. I felt very much loved uh, in the home and with my extended relatives. Uh, but amongst my peers, I felt unlikable and no good. Uh, and so, and so the, that story that I began to believe about myself um, had a direct impact on my view and practice of sexuality as an adolescent, as a young person. My sexual fantasies, and that's as far as I'm going to put it, so I don't make you feel any more uncomfortable. My personal, as a kid, my sexual fantasies and acting out on my sexual fantasies, it made me feel likable. It made the stress of having to go to school every day a little bit less stressful. 
And that's my own story. But that's, this is my point. Listening more intently, paying more attention to the story that you believe about yourself and the story that other people have told you about yourself is incredibly important if you're going to be a healed sexual human being as God created you to be, a fully restored body and soul sexual human being, whether you're married or whether you're single or whether you're not sure what you should be. Learning to listen most intently to a new story, to an older story of God's love and his forgiveness and his transforming power to heal you. Our sins no longer define us. Grace does. The grace of God does. And as we unpack this, I want to talk to you today about our story as a collective faith community. And I want to talk to you about your individual story, my individual story. And finally, I want to talk to you about God's story, which interprets all of them with clarity and truth Our story together, your story as an individual, and God's story, which speaks truth and sheds light on both. Grace tells our story as a people of God. Grace tells us that we are a new people. We're not the way we used to be, but as a community, we are a community of new Newly redefined people, and that, that's Paul's point here, as in much of this letter, to remind the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, that they are a new people, a new community. And this is what's kind of behind this verse, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, Paul right there is referring back to the beginning of the chapter. We didn't read it today. Chapter 6, verse 1, in which he rebuked the Christians in Corinth, for suing each other in public court, for taking their dirty laundry as a community into the public secular court system where, in Paul's word, unrighteous judges, judges that did not share their worldview, that did not understand the wisdom of God, would adjudicate their issues. And now that's going to be a sermon and a topic for another day uh, later Later in the, in the series, Christians suing one another. We'll, we'll get to that. But that's the context in which Paul is saying, look, the unrighteous, the people you're taking to resolve your conflicts, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and so what he does is, is he starts listing lifestyles and sins and behaviors to kind of summarize the kind of people uh, that the Corinthians were going to to try and solve their conflicts. And he describes this, and I'll just list them off to you from verses 9 and 10. Uh, The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers. A reviler is a really argumentative person. And then finally, swindlers, like people, people, wolves in sheep's clothing is basically what the word means. So Paul kind of lists all of these sins and, and, and lifestyles. He did it earlier in chapter 5, and he does it in some of his other letters here and there. But he mentions them all. Now, notice how many of these labels involve sexuality, almost half. Now, before you cast Paul as some self-righteous bigot, 
Um, you may remember that Paul writing this is a recovering Pharisee. He's a recovering moral legalist. Uh, and who said earlier in chapter 5 that he's not trying to judge anybody. When he looks at the people of the world and the way they're acting, he goes out of his way to say, I'm not trying to judge any of them. It's not our business to judge what the world does. Uh, so just having said that, I have to come back to why is Paul bringing this up? It's because this list of offenses highlights their past, the people he's writing to, the Christians. This list of offenses highlights their own story. Because he says in verse 11, such were some of you. The practices, the lifestyles uh, that he lists here, he's saying these are the things that once defined you. These are the things by which you yourselves found identity. These are the things by which you defined yourselves. And he goes on to say in verse 11, but, but, this is one of the most important buts in the New Testament. That word is really important, and here we see it in a remarkable way, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a beautiful thing to say. In the original Greek language, Paul placed the word but in front of every verb in the sentence to be emphatic, to make it absolutely clear. What he's saying is, you used to be this way. You used to be defined and identified with these ways of life, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Those words, washed and sanctified and justified, we can talk about each one of them for weeks but just very briefly, let me tell you what they mean in summary. You were washed. It means Jesus, by his blood, cleaned the bad record off of you. Cleaned the sin right off of you. Washed your nasty, dirty record, morally speaking, clean, clear. Sanctified means to be consecrated, to be taken by God and set apart for his purposes. Saying, you're special to me. I love you. I'm going to take care of you now, and I'm going to put you to good use in this world and in this life, set apart as distinct for God's own special loving purposes. And finally, justified was a legal term. Think of a courtroom. Justified meant that you are acquitted, that the debt has been paid on your sin or on your penalty. Acquitted, no longer guilty, regardless of how you've acted, no longer guilty in God's eyes because of the blood of Jesus Christ who was perfect, who paid your guilty sentence himself. And Paul is saying, in all these ways, you are no longer the unrighteous, but you are now righteous. Why? By your own behavior? No, not at all. They were a mess, but by Christ's behavior, by God's efforts, you're clean. You're set apart as special. You are acquitted as legally innocent before a holy and just creator who is a judge. By God's efforts, you're all these things. And, and really, that's what grace is. It's God's unmerited, undeserved, loving favor upon you. Grace defines us. Grace defined them is what Paul is trying to say to them. God's people, whether ancient Israel or whether since Paul's day, the church, we are a new people. 
Isaiah chapter 1, uh, we read it earlier today. It's uh, God says to the Israelites, because of their sin, because of their injustice and oppression and their unwillingness to listen to him and follow him, uh, he says to them, wash yourselves, right? They were called to wash themselves, but, but to no avail. They couldn't. They couldn't wash themselves clean. You and I cannot, morally speaking, wash ourselves clean. Grace, on the other hand, calls us to a life in which we respond to God washing us. It's no longer wash yourselves. It's Jesus saying, I washed you. And that's grace. And Paul says, that is who you are now. You were these things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God must do it. As Jesus said to Peter in John 13, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Grace not only defines the church, the people of God, as a new people, a new community, but grace defines every individual within the community. Each of us who seek to follow Christ Grace tells your story. Grace doesn't just tell our story, but it actually tells your story as an individual. You, by the grace of God, are a new person. Paul says again, and such were some of you. Verse 11, such were some of you. That phrase, it reveals that history is a part of your story. History is a big part of what makes up your story. And as, as you begin to look at those sins that he lists off, I'm sure, I'm sure many of us can identify with at least one of them, or, or perhaps in my case, several of them that at one time or another in our lives dominated our story. Uh, some of those sins were my past. And if I'm not careful, some of those sins would still dominate my present. And look, if any of you... If any of those issues or sins are in your past, neither I nor anyone in this room can judge you. We have no grounds on which to stand to judge one another because we all have committed something against the good, right purposes of our Creator. James, in his letter, highlights this point very much. James chapter 2, in which he says, Whoever keeps the whole law... And yet stumbles, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So you can be proud, I can be proud of myself, falsely proud of myself for not committing adultery, but if I've committed murder, I'm still a lawbreaker. And Jesus pointed out in his Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew that the law doesn't just, that God's law doesn't just address our behavior, it addresses the content of our hearts and our thinking. And that we can murder and we can commit adultery in our minds. That's how important God's law and requirements are, was Jesus' point. And so, what, what we, none of us have any ground to stand on in judging another human being for committing any of these sins. Um, but this is my point in bringing all this up. Remembering your history keeps you humble. Remembering your past keeps you humble. And remembering your past keeps you thankful. 
And that's true of Paul, who could say to his young friend Timothy, I'm the biggest sinner I know. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the biggest. This is Paul who wrote half of the New Testament. I'm the biggest sinner I know, he said. And if you read the book of Acts, the history of the birth of Christianity, you watch the apostle Paul when he would speak and when he would talk about the message of Christ, he would always bring up his past. He would say things like in Acts chapter 22, I persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And then he would go on and talk about how the Lord Jesus changed him. An honest historical assessment of yourself provides the setting for grace. Verse 11 again, but you were washed. You see, in our storytelling, it's important to find same struggle people who can assist us on our path toward healing. And it's very important. Think of 12-step programs. Think of some support groups, even some subcultures. Uh, uh, people create entire subcultures and, and community groups based on their past struggles or their current struggles and how it impacts their identity and their lives. And in some cases, these subgroups and these support groups and these 12-step programs are incredibly helpful. Uh, whether, uh, whether your background is in substance abuse uh, whether your background is being abused, whether your background is some form of sexual brokenness, whatever it might be, I agree that you need, that I need a community that knows our struggle well, that has walked, where people have walked through that struggle, they know the temptation, they know the difficulty, and they can hold you accountable and they can speak truth to you and they can encourage you when you struggle. Uh, that is so important. But listen to this. Those communities and those programs and those, um, um, those subgroups are only as helpful as their commitment to helping you find your soul identity in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Those groups, as helpful as they are, are for the Christian, are only as helpful to you as they are committed to helping you find your, your, the essence of your identity in Jesus alone. When Paul would speak about changed life, he, he would say in many of his letters, you know, your old self died with Jesus on the cross. Your new self came out of the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, you're a new person. Start acting like the new person that God's made you. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Therefore, put off the old self. Put on the new self. Act as you are because you are different by the grace of God. And Paul would say this again and again. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God saves you, but act like you're saved. The long, hard process of doing that. Uh, now, now, in that context, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says here, now when he says here, he means in this faith community, right? A hospital full of sinners, 
Not a museum for saints, as somebody once said, but a hospital full of sinners, full of forgiven sinners. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what does he mean by making statements like that? Is he saying that, that when you become a Christian, if you're a woman, you're no longer a woman? If you're black and you become a Christian, you're no longer black? If you're an American and you become a Christian, you're no longer an American? Or, or, or let's get more to the point here with the topic we're looking at. That when you become a Christian, you no longer struggle with temptation? That when you, be, when you become a Christian, you no longer lust? You no longer wrestle with same-sex attraction. You no longer lust after people in your own mind. That when you become a Christian, you're no longer sexually broken. Is that what he's saying? Not at all. What he is saying is this, that none of these characteristics, that none of these labels, that none of these struggles essentially define you. The grace of God for a sinner defines you. The grace of God for a sinner, tells your story. Jesus accepts you as you are. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well in the village of Sychar. Jesus met with that woman, and she had a reputation. Everybody knew her in town for always being with a different guy. And some of the people, Jesus' own disciples knew culturally they weren't allowed to go near that woman, and they certainly weren't allowed to talk to her in public. And Jesus walked right up to her. And got into a conversation. Now, he challenged her to change the way she was living and change her belief system. But he loved her and he befriended her and he, cha- and he changed her life. Jesus will meet you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And no matter what the temptation is, no matter what the feeling is, no matter what the disposition is or the orientation is or the lifestyle that you are wrestling with or living in, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Therefore, although the long, hard road of change is before you, change is possible. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the story, my friends. This is the story that grace is trying to tell us. It means that some of you are going to have to start asking yourselves the question, who is speaking into my life? Who am I listening to? What am I listening to? What is the story I or others have convinced me to believe about myself? Some of us, this means that some of us are going to have to ask a different question. Am I a safe listener for broken people to tell their story to? Is the church, is our church a safe environment for broken people, especially sexually broken people in our culture of confusion and chaos to tell their story without feeling like they are being judged and treated as differently? Are we safe listeners for broken people to tell their story so that eventually after listening, we will have something to say by pointing them to a greater story? Rosaria Butterfield uh, talks about how she felt before she became a Christian and even 
as she was becoming a Christian. She wrote, oh, where'd it go? Ah, here it is. She wrote, here is one of the deepest ways that Christians scared me. The lesbian community was home and home felt safe and secure. The lesbian community was accepting and welcoming while the Christian community appeared and too often is exclusive, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. I think we need to hear that. The church should be a safe place for people to hear the story of grace. And as we said in the very beginning a few weeks ago, grace and truth balanced together. Your past should inform your story, but not define it. Your past is a part of your story. But according to Paul, it no longer defines who you are. We're stubborn. We're stubborn people. We, we believe what we want to believe. We write our own stories. We, we find the story out there that somebody's telling us, and that's, that's what we latch on to, even if it's a terribly oppressive story. We latch on to stories, and we're stubborn in believing a new one. Be careful not to become what you remember, as Kurt Thompson wrote. One of the stories, one of the prevailing stories of our society today is this. Embrace what you've done. Embrace it. Own it. What you've done, what you do, and the feelings and the desires that you have within you, embrace it and make no apologies for it. And that is a false narrative. There's another story going around, and it's more prevalent in religious communities, and it goes something like this. You will never be accepted for what you've done and for what you do and for how you feel and for what you wrestle with. You will never be accepted. And that also is a false narrative. But the Bible tells a story about a loving God who created us body and soul as good and to share with us in his joy. But believing one false narrative after another, right from the beginning with our first parents, we, we just ran away from him. We moved away from him, believing any story but the story that he continually tries to tell us about who he is and who we are. And just a couple of places in the Bible summarize it beautifully. The prophet Hosea tells a story describing God as a faithful husband, a faithful, loving husband whose spouse, whose bride abandoned him, but a loving husband who woos her back into his arms. Jesus in, his prodig- in, uh, Jesus, in his parable about the prodigal son, tells the story of a God who is like a loving father, a, a loving, patient, generous father who's rejected by his son who runs off and wastes the family inheritance and only after a while comes back to him and how the father just waits and waits and waits and sees the sun coming from a far off distance. And when the sun comes and the sun doesn't know what to expect, he's saying, Dad, I, I don't deserve to be your child anymore. Just treat me like a slave. Treat me like one of your hired servants. And the father embraces him. And the father says, hey, we're going to celebrate because my son was dead. 
and now he's alive again. The heart of God was most captured, or at least God's heart was foreshadowed, uh, was, was, was intricately placed within the early plot line of biblical redemption, of the history of our redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, when Adam and Eve, after they sinned and believed the serpent's story, found that, looked at each other and were ashamed in their nakedness, in their utter exposure to one another and to the world and to their creator. And so they hid. They made clothes and they hid. And God came looking for them in the garden. It's not that he didn't know where they were. Um, And he said to them these three famous words, where are you? Again, it's not that he didn't know where they were. But in their shame and humiliation and sin and rebellion, He reaches out to them for dialogue. He reaches out to them for relationship and wants to know, where are you? And again, Kurt Thompson in his book writes this, this concept of God saying to them in their sin, where are you? This is what the God of the Bible, this is what the God of the biblical narrative does. He comes to find us. Our perception, our perception is often of his walking away, leaving us out of his mind. Perhaps that tells us more about our perceptual capacity than his movement and presence. God is a persistent storyteller. He is an infinitely creative storyteller. If humanity didn't want to listen to one story, he found another way to tell it. Story after story reflecting his heart. He is persistent and creative as a master storyteller. He hasn't given up. He didn't give up. He hasn't given up. And the story of grace was ultimately embodied, and we like to say incarnated in Jesus. And this is how the Gospel of John opens up describing Jesus. The Word, the Word became flesh. Let's translate that for today's purposes. The story became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of God saying to us, where are you? Jesus is the embodiment of saying to us, I have always been here for you. When are you going to start listening to the story I'm trying to tell you? Jesus alone can tell that story. Jesus said, I have sheep and, and, and my sheep hear my voice and they listen to my voice. Jesus alone can tell us the story of who we are. Our sins no longer define us, he says. His grace does. So let your past or current struggle, inform your story, but never define it. It is no longer the central theme. The grace of God who has washed you, who has sanctified you, who has justified you is the central theme. Let the Lord Jesus speak it to you. And surround yourself with people who will point you 
to that story, who will remind you to listen to God's grand story. And let us together, wherever you are in your walk with God, whether you have been following Jesus for 40 years or whether you're still not convinced you should trust Jesus, listen to his voice. And may we become a community where we begin to listen to one another and to the people in our community out there who are confused and broken, who need to hear the grand storyteller tell him who they are, who will help them heal as sexually whole, restored sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we conclude our time reflecting on Paul's wisdom for the current struggle and crisis and confusion of our culture, telling us who we are sexually. Father, give us the grace to hear the story you have been sharing with us from the beginning of our history. But help us now to hear it. May it change us. Help us to use our past as a guide to inform our present, but never to define us. May your grace alone in Christ define who we are. Help us to listen to one another as we share that story. Give us patience and humility and love for those who need to hear it, maybe for the first time. And lead us all to healing and restoration. For the sake of Jesus, our Savior, in his wonderful name, amen.